Doing great. Oh, <laughs> like I didn't pick that one up. Yeah. So we'll be in Isaiah 49, verse 18 is where we're going to begin. I don't know about you, but I've found this study through Isaiah very illuminating God's relationship with his people. So it's uh, God dealing with his people, all the facets of that relationship, how their rebellion, it led to battles and uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. It forced their exile to Babylon. And God warned them. He said, hey, this is the, the consequence of your actions. And he sent, he gave them centuries to repent. And he sent prophets to them, but they didn't listen and went after idolatry. And they thought by virtue of being God's special people, having the temple in their midst, that they were guaranteed victory. But the truth was they forfeited their birthright to victory because of sin. And they were shocked when it actually happened as God said. So he said, this is what's going to happen. If you continue down this path, they kept going down that path and, and they were defeated. And it's true for Christians as well. We have such a, such a blessing and a benefit when we come to Christ and we're born again and we're freed from sin and the power of it. Uh, and, and yet we can become slack. We can be forgetful and we can choose to almost exile ourselves away from his will and then find ourselves uh, far away from God. Now, praise the Lord, he is close to those who have a contrite heart, and God won't force us to return to him, but he, he will allow us to fall into the hands of the enemy for a season, in the case of Israel, 70 years, so that they would repent and come to him. And God wants us to recognize his rule, uh, repent and return, that we would come to him and trust him. There was a day when there was no hope for Jerusalem to be saved. A day came when there was no hope that those walls would stand or that the temple would stand. It was going to be thrown down because God said so. But there was always hope for the people. There was hope for any person who would obey God, who would be loyal to him. And that's something that's so important we lose heart because we put our hope in the wrong things. We, we think that we can save ourselves or based upon um, our circumstances changing, things will be better. But really, we need God. God's terms, Psalm 34, 18 and 19, it says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will deliver you out of every one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your promises, your goodness to us. We're so grateful that we have been uh, made your children, that you've adopted us and accepted us into the beloved through the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you for your goodness to us for your promises that are, are beyond comprehension, really. Help us to lay hold of them, Lord, and to understand what you're saying. Help us to be much more than just information, but truly touch our hearts, Lord. We need a, a move of your spirit in each one of us so that we can put away sin, walk in the way that pleases you, and rejoice in you and, and see you working. So open our eyes to see, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the context of this chapter that we began last week, it's speaking of what the Messiah would accomplish. Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. He would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God would be compassionate. He would comfort his people. And and we talked about last week, I said, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Like we'd write down a reminder. He's like, I've inscribed you. I've carved you into my hands. And the Lord will never forget you. He has not forsaken you. And the remainder of this chapter, uh, that's why I broke it where we did, is because most of this coming up in this chapter has a future fulfillment when Jesus returns and establishes his throne. So starting in verse 18 of Isaiah 49, it says, Lift up your eyes, look around and see all these gathered together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have, after you have lost the others, will say again in your ears, The place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive, and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where were they? When the children of Israel returned to Jerusalem to rebuild and resettle after those 70 years of Babylonian captivity, it says that God moved the hearts of some people to return. There were more Jews who chose to remain in Babylon than return to Jerusalem because it was a 1,400 kilometer journey. It was dangerous. They were leaving homes. They were leaving family. They were leaving security. The, the walls where they lived to go to Jerusalem, where they knew the walls were burnt. The gates were burnt with fire. It was desolate. It was not protected. It was not safe. It's a big job to rebuild a city. Big stones, a lot of work, starting really it's almost worse than starting with a bare slate. It wasn't a bare slate. There was all this memory of the destruction of what had happened there and all this rubble everywhere. So they had to clear that first and then rebuild. So it was a huge job. Ezra and Nehemiah, they numbered the people to be about 50,000 in total that went. Now, if we fast forward to our day, since Israel has been established as a nation in 1948, there's many Jews who have returned. At the moment, Israel is not an open country to immigrants. I saw that on the immigration website. It says, Israeli, despite being a liberal democratic country, is not an immigration country. Therefore, Israel does not have laws and regulations enabling foreigners who wish to come and settle Israel the opportunity to do so. So you do not just immigrate to Israel. In 1952, there was a right-to-return law that was passed, which Jews meeting conditions could immigrate. You must show that you have uh, Jewish ancestry, that you speak Hebrew, and you waive all other citizenships. So it's kind of a difficult thing, unless you're a Jew, to immigrate to uh, Israel permanently. It's not a immigration country. But this passage, it's speaking of Jews and Gentiles returning in great numbers to Jerusalem. 
During the Great Tribulation, we read that Jews will be persecuted by the Antichrist, but God is going to bring an exponential increase of those who are loyal to him. He's going to bring people from all over the world to convene in Jerusalem. And instead of having spare room, because it's sad, they're like, oh, I'm desolate, I'm without children. But these, where did they come from? God is going to raise up children from all over the world. And God will, um, it's almost like he's going to bind the Gentiles to the Jews as an ornament. And an ornament is something to beautify. And that's one thing that Jesus does, is he unites people. He brings people from all different cultures together as one, this beautiful picture of unity through Christ. Those that God has adopted into his family, he has room for you. He will supply all your needs. He did it for the Jews when they went back. They were marvelously helped. And God also will help those to this day and in the future. Maybe that's how you feel. The nation was feeling the loss of their children. They felt desolate. They said, we're just wandering to and fro. We're aimless. We don't really have a clear direction of where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. But then there's all these children that have come. Like, you're feeling the bereavement of your own children, but then there's all these others. And you're like, who brought these up? Where did they come from? God brings exponential increase out of loss, which is hard to understand. But there's many examples. You have um, Adam and Eve with their son Abel, right, through Seth a huge line of of people. Job, he lost his children. He was bereaved of them, but God gave him more. Naomi, she went to Moab and she lost her husband and her two sons. And she came back with a daughter-in-law, a widow. And from her, through her line, came the line of David and Christ. And then you think of Christ on the cross, the only son of God going to the cross, suffering and dying. And yet through him, all who are saved are saved. So it's like, wow, through suffering, through loss, there can be gain beyond compare. And that's what we see in this passage. We have to trust God to believe that, don't we? Because it doesn't feel like that's the case. When we're feeling the bereavement, we're feeling the pain. Isaiah 49, 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Before Jesus ascended to the Father, he promised to return. And God swears here that he's going to bring forth sons and daughters. They were going to flock to his standard, his banner. So he sets up his banner, and people loyal to him from all over the world will come. Now, when I worked in a refinery many years ago, one of the first things they teach you is where the muster locations are. And if you're unfamiliar with the term, the muster location is where you go in in a case of an emergency, where the foreman can count and make sure that everyone's accounted for. Because in a refinery, there's some very toxic and noxious chemicals used to refine the petroleum. And some of them, if you take a few breaths of them, you're dead. So it's something they teach you right away. They say, if you hear this siren, if you hear this alarm, you need to drop what you're doing immediately, take a look at the wind direction, and make sure you go upwind. You don't want to go downwind. You want to go upwind to your muster location so that you can be counted 
this was driven home very early. Like, this is a dangerous place. You trying to finish tightening that pipe or something, that, that's not worth it. It's not worth your life. Now, when Jesus returns to judge the world, he sets up his standard of righteousness. Jerusalem will be that muster location where people loyal to him are going to come. And it's cool how the remaining nations, they are going to help Jews return back to Jerusalem. It's, it's cool. It says, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. So this idea of fostering, of caring for those who aren't your own, it says they're going to carry you. They're going to protect you. They're going to be nursing you. And this, this concept of placing children or orphans in foster homes, it goes back to the Torah, verses like this. And it shows the reverence that kings and queens will give to those who love God and who follow Christ. It's like they're going to lick the dust of your feet. I mean, they're going to humble themselves. A king is going to humble himself before the servant of the Almighty God because Jesus is the king. He is worthy of that. And then the prophet concludes, he says, Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. From a worldly perspective today, it's not often an advantage to tell people that you are a Christian or you are a Jew. There's places in the world where that's not beneficial for you. You're actually asking for trouble. We know that followers of Christ, they've been shamed and persecuted throughout the world. But hear this, no one who trusts in Christ, no one who looks to Jesus for salvation will be ashamed. There's no shame in following Christ. It is only joy and blessing. An example for you. This year, the Cronulla Sharks won the premiership for the first time since 1967, since they came into the league, right? Now, I did look at their record because I had heard they'd never won before. And uh, there were three times they had the wooden spoon. Unfortunately for many who here, or some here, uh, Parramatta has, has the wooden spoon many, many more times. I was like, oh, wow, that's a lot of times. But they've been in the league, you know, whatever. But when the Sharks won that game, you know, when they, the siren sounded and they had won, there was no shame in being a Cronulla supporter in that night. You know, it was like all the failures, all the wooden spoons, all the close calls, they were all just gone out of mind. There was no one with a bag over their heads that said Cronulla fan on it that night with eye holes cut in because they had won. They were the champions. There was no shame that day. This next season, it, it could be a totally different story. But think of how infinitely more joyous and amazing it will be when Jesus Christ is on the throne and recognized by the world as the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the high priest. Everyone's going to know that. Everyone will bow before him. And what joy. There's no child of God who's going to look back on a life and just say, but the suffering was really bad in that moment. In fact, it's the suffering through those dry and terrible seasons that make the victory so much more sweet. Because you were there when you did have the wooden spoon. And when you were down. And yet Jesus has brought you through. No child of God is going to be disappointed when Jesus establishes his kingdom in the heart of a person or sets his throne in Jerusalem. 
Isaiah 49, 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Holy, the Mighty One of Jacob. Typically, when the Mighty has prey, he can keep it. Think about a lioness who takes down an ibex or something. No lone jackal is going to be able to prize that kill away from her because she is much stronger. But it says here, even the captives of the mighty will be delivered. God is going to rescue his people. God is going to intervene. And he says, I'll contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. So God's the one who does the saving. He's the one who does the contending. And this is a great promise because God protects his children. It reminded me of a story that my dad told about his brother who daubed in some boys in the back of the bus for smoking. Well, they weren't very happy about that, and later they picked a fight with him. Well, my dad had five older sisters, and they were pretty tough from what I hear. And his older sister, she beat those guys up. And she said, her mentality was, you pick a fight with my brother, you're picking a fight with me. Now you've got to deal with me. Now, my dad would also say, behind closed doors at home, anything's fair game, you know. You touch the TV remote, and don't be surprised if something's coming you know, flying through the air at your head. But this is the idea, God saying, you fight with my people, you're picking a fight with me, and I'm going to contend with you, I will save. I'm going to deliver. You think about all the times where people thought the children of Israel were easy targets, and God, he, he flooded them with the Red Sea, right? The Egyptians are bearing down on them with chariots and horses. And, and you have these people walking through the dry land in the middle of the sea with their families, with their belongings, their, their donkeys and animals. It's not a fast um, procession, and yet God delivered his people. You think about the time where the, the enemy was all around Samaria and God smote them with blindness. He just struck them blind. Other times, he turned their swords against each other, swords that they had sharpened, intending to kill the Jewish people. They turned on themselves, and they they fell by the thousands because God is a delivering God. He's a saving God. The Bible says those who dig a hole will fall into it. Those who roll a stone will have it roll back on them. What's A couple examples. When Satan, he expected a death blow to be afflicted upon Christ when he killed him on the cross. And yet, in that very act, he was disarmed of all of his power over sin and death, which plagued people since the fall in Eden. So he really cut his own throat, unknowingly. He had no idea that he had actually disarmed himself. The efforts of the chief priests to kill Christ and to conceal him in the tomb, right? A tomb hewn out of the rock with the seal with the guard, they were so careful to ensure his body was protected that they only proved the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. They presented some of the strongest evidence possible of Christ's resurrection 
because of their attempt to keep him dead and hidden. So moving on to the next chapter, Isaiah 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Previously in the chapter, in chapter 49, God's people felt forsaken, they felt forgotten, but God had not put them away. He had never divorced them. The Bible says God hates divorce. We read that in Malachi 2.16. It says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And the word treacherous is the idea that you're presenting something, you're saying, you're making one claim, but you're living in a totally different way. Now the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah They had both been treacherous to God. We read about that in Ezekiel in different places, the other prophets. And because of the hardness of the heart of the people in the northern kingdom, their refusal to return, having sold themselves into sin, it said God put them away. Their northern kingdom was never restored, only the southern kingdom. God had been faithful to his people, but they had dealt treacherously, having sold themselves into sin. He's like, hey, I did not sell you because I was in debt. I did not pawn you off to get me out of a tough spot. You sold yourselves into sin. You made that choice. In in one sense, God had nothing to do with the situation that the Jews found themselves with in Jerusalem because they had chosen to exile themselves. They had chosen to distance themselves between God and themselves, and they were sold into sin. They sought many lovers, the Bible said. In Ezekiel 16, God portrayed them as an unfaithful spouse. And in verse 33, he says, you know, people usually pay for the services of a harlot, but you're actually paying people to sleep with you. It's ugly what you guys are doing. And so he he put it quite graphically there. And the people of Jerusalem then, they were sent into Babylon. And God begged them to return. He wanted them to come back. He would not divorce them because he had made an everlasting covenant with them. I don't believe that God will put us away. He's not going to divorce us. If we're a child of God, if we have sinned, even if we've backslidden, God still calls us to return. But in the hardness of our hearts, we can choose to file papers against him. We can choose to become apostate and to walk away from him and his covenant and deny it, to not live in light of that anymore. There are warnings against apostasy in the New Testament. That's a willful departure from God. So if there's a warning, I believe it's possible. We have complete assurance of salvation, but we can still choose to deny Christ. As long as you live, however, there is hope for you if we will repent and return to him. God wants to restore the backslider in heart. Check this out. He says, I put away your mother. Okay, that's Israel, the northern kingdom. They had been put away. He says, yeah, we're divorced. But check this out. Though that nation, though the northern kingdom was destroyed, 
there's people from those tribes included in God's future kingdom, future kingdom. How do I know? Well, in the book of the Revelation, we read that there's 144,000 of the tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom included, who will be righteous and who, whose lines are still living to this day because they will exist. So there's hope for the individual. Even if the nation is cut off from God, God will save anyone who comes to him. So it's not like, yeah, you know, society is in a bad way and, and there's really no hope for us. Well, there's hope for you. There may not be hope for a society or a nation in a sense, but there is always hope for you in Jesus Christ. There is always assurance. We have those promises of God if we will repent and return that he will save and deliver, period. That is awesome. Your salvation is assured by the eternal word of God if we repent and trust. Isaiah 40, excuse me, 50, 2 and 3. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. God had placed his presence in the midst of the people in the temple. And yet, even when they assembled, they weren't coming to him. There were times where they fasted. He says, are you fasting for me? Are you just fasting for yourselves? I know you're fasting for yourselves because the other 10 months out of the year, you're not living for me. When people would offer sacrifices, it was for themselves. It wasn't for God. And so God's like, when I came, why was there no man? I gave you my laws. I, I gave you my precepts. And I placed my presence here. And it's like a a father coming home and saying, hey, I'm home. And there's nobody home. Everyone's left. You've departed from God. Now, it's not too, it wasn't too late for them to return to him. They had sold themselves, but he could pay their debts. Isn't that awesome? He's saying, you're not in too great of a debt for me to pay. I am not poor. I have all that's required to pay your debt. You've played the harlot with many lovers. You're in debt, but I can supply your needs. Sin led to suffering, but God had not forsaken his beloved. You may think your sin is too great for God to take you back, but God's love is infinitely greater than yours. And it's not that God won't take people back. It's just that often they're not willing to come back under his conditions. Humble, contrite, repentance. In verse 3, it speaks of darkness. And it reminded me of how when Jesus hung on the cross, yeah, for three hours, the sun did not shine. The grieving, sackcloth is something you'd wear when you're mourning. And that was a sign to them. And when Jesus rose from the dead at the dawn of that day, with his resurrection dawns a hope for every person who trusts in Christ. If you have a God who raises people from the dead, he can give eternal life. He can save you. That's the power of God, to restore a relationship. God is the one reaching out, and we are to be the ones who are peacemakers with others. Verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, 
that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So you see a shift here where we see me in capitals. God, God's servant, the Messiah, is speaking, the one that he promised to deliver his people. Jesus was not trained in seminary. There was no rabbi that he sat under. God gave Jesus the tongue of the learned. To what end? It says that he would know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. We can be weary even in doing good. Malachi, the prophet, rebuked the people. He said, how, how, how are you saying that there is such weariness in serving God and sacrificing to God? You know, shame on you for saying that. That, oh, what a weariness. Oh, what a burden. He's like, you have connection with God. How could you be saying that? Jesus came to the weary. He came to people weary of religion, weary of sin, weary of working to earn favor with God, weary from pain, weary from sickness and impression, people who are weary of life. Jesus comes and he has a word to say to you. He has a word to say to me. A gentle and encouraging word from God that he knows all about it, and he is a savior. He is able to deliver. Day by day, Jesus was sustained by the Holy Spirit, by God. It says he awakens me morning by morning. We, we want to feel strong to tackle a week. You know, to tackle this space of time, and then we can relax. You know, like, oh, well, I've got this, this exam coming up, and I've got to really study, and I've got to... We, we kind of want to work ourselves up to feel like we can handle it. But we need to realize we need God's strength every morning. Morning by morning, we need his strength. It's not like we can just go, oh, okay, now I can relax as far as move away from the Lord, but to stay close to the Lord, to rely upon him. Say, morning by morning, God is waking you up and God is speaking to you when you're weary. If I described a person to you as, oh yeah, that guy knows everything, how would that come across? You go, oh, arrogant, boastful, someone I don't want to know. Well, you know, Jesus knows everything. <laughs> you could describe him in those terms. We usually say he's loving and he's kind, and, but he knows everything. Yet he wasn't boastful or arrogant. He was a listener. He said, the Lord God has opened my ear. So he's listening to the needs of other people. He's listening to the leading of the Spirit. He's not going to boast in pride, but he spoke the truth in love. It says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And there's always this connection between obedience to God and hearing his voice. And I said it in that order intentionally. We might think that you hear his voice and then obey. But those who obey God will hear him. 
Those who remain in unbelief will not recognize his voice, even if they hear the words that are being spoken. Isaiah and Jesus spoke to people whose physical ears worked just fine. Nothing wrong with their auditory um, nerves or anything, but because they would not believe, they could not hear. They couldn't get what he was saying. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, is standing before them doing these signs and miracles, and yet they, could, they didn't recognize him as the Son of God. So they could see the things, but they couldn't see. Because Jesus was obedient to God, God opened his ear. He was able to hear God. He knew he had been chosen to suffer, to serve, to die on the cross, and he rejoiced to do it. And see what the obedience to God required in verse 6. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. It was Leonard Ravenhill that said, Everyone wants my anointing and mantle. No one wants my sackcloth and ashes. We all want the benefits that come from a relationship with God. But know that they come at a cost of obedience, and obedience always will cost you something. It will cost. The person who forgives is the one who pays. It costs them something to forgive. Jesus knew that obeying the will of the Father meant separation, it meant pain, it meant torture and death. Out of love for the Father, he offered his back to people who would pulverize it with a scourge. He held still while people ripped out his beard in clumps. I mean, he held still. He did not shy away when people were spitting on him. Here is a man who is totally submitted to the will of the Father, out of love for the Father. Jesus was willing to obey when it cost him everything. And as Christians, we're called to the same thing, to face these trials joyfully because we count God faithful and worthy, that he is a deliverer. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know that Jesus plainly told his followers they should expect Trials, to be hated, um, to be persecuted, and to face tribulation. These are things that he said, this, this is what following me is going to involve. In exchange for sin, which doomed us, we have his love, his acceptance, purpose, comfort, peace, joy, eternal life. We have everything. In following Jesus, we voluntarily exile ourselves from the world's approval, and we seek to please God. Let's continue in Isaiah 50, verse 7. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Crucifixion is disgraceful, but Jesus was not disgraced by God. He walked in obedience. God's grace was abundant towards him. Crucifixion was humiliating and shameful, yet Jesus was not ashamed to suffer or to die. He didn't need to justify himself before people. 
because it was God who justifies me. See, you have a problem with me? Come on, bring it on. God is near who justifies me. I don't have to justify myself. I don't have to protect myself. And it says there that he, he set his face like a flint. Now, flint, it's a form of quartz. It's very hard. It's a hard material, one of the harder ones. It's 7 out of 10 on the hardness scale. Diamond is a 10. Interestingly, it appears in chalk beds, which is quite a, a difference. You know, chalk, it's soft and powdery. And then you have flint, which is in the chalk bed, which is super hard. And it's like glass. It can be, you can hit it. You cannot carve it. And you cannot cut it because it would just shatter. So you can hit it and chip off little fragments and make a razor sharp edge. Basically, the idea is, is once it's set, there's no changing it. You can't polish it or it's already polished. It's very hard and how it, how it breaks. So in faith and obedience, Jesus approached his suffering like that. He was not going to be turned aside from it. He had made his decision. It was solid. It wasn't going to alter it. It wasn't going to change it. Unswerving from God's will, he had this resolve. And then you have those who condemned him. He compares to moth-eaten garments. That's a huge contrast. You have a face like a flint. Flint and moth-eaten garments. Something that's just falling apart. No strength at all. If you could look up, please, Luke 9, 51, and the beginning of 52. I want you to consider the perspective that Jesus had when it came to trials and when it came to his crucifixion. Because he had this eternal perspective that's so good for us to maintain in our trial, when we feel bereaved, when we're hurting. I mean, if you knew the cross was looming before you, how would you, would it occupy any thought of your mind during the day? Like if you knew next Tuesday, you're going to be crucified. And it's going to be very rough. Spiritually, physically, people are, your best friends are going to leave you. Uh, it's going to be brutal. I'm thinking you'd be really preoccupied with that. And you may be trying to think of how you can get out of it. But look at what Jesus said. Look at what it says about Jesus. Luke 9, 51-52a. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. Now did you catch that? It didn't say lifted up. It says received up. We know that Jesus was lifted up on the cross, but he looked beyond the pain, he looked beyond the sorrow, and he said, I am going to be received up. God has already received me, and I am going to rise. So he looked to the resurrection. He looked to the acceptance with the Father. That was his paradigm for facing sorrow. It wasn't like, oh, no, you know, it's going to hurt. Oh, it's going to be difficult. I just got to endure this. I just got to get through this. It, It wasn't really even in the picture. He was looking to be received up because that's what was going to happen. He was assured of that. Pain preoccupies us. Fear of unknown, it paralyzes us. But it's God who upholds, who comforts us, that we have been accepted in the beloved. We've been received of God into his family. 
Instead of fearing pain, remember you've been received, and a day is coming when you too will be received up into a place where, where pain and fear and sorrow are not even a memory because they're gone from existence. No death, no pain, no sorrow, no regrets, no guilt. So I ask, will you set your face like a flint in seeking Christ, the fullness of the Spirit, even as Jesus went to the cross knowing he would be received? God's like opening his arms to you. He opens his arms to me in our weariness, in our sorrow, and he says, come to me. That's what we need to set our face like a flint. Not to like, okay, I'm going to endure. I'm going to get through this. Well, if that doesn't last very long until you, you're pretty much giving up. <laughs> I can be pretty upbeat until one bad thing happens. Then I'm like, oh, why am I alive? The Lord knows what he's doing. And we can trust him. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. If we fear the Lord... We will obey him. We will keep his commands because our faith is demonstrated through obedience. And those in darkness, he says, guys, come into the light. Walk in the light. People in the captivity, trust in me. Rely upon me. You may believe that God can save you, but do you believe he has saved you and he will receive you and he will present you faultless before the Father with exceeding joy? If you receive the light of the world, you don't need to abide in darkness any longer. This world and everything in it is going to burn. And he said, there's this picture of you can either walk in the light or you can light your own fire. And if you choose to light and kindle your own fire, it is going to burn you. It is going to torment you and it will destroy your life. So we have a choice if we're going to walk in the light of Jesus Christ or we're going to kindle a fire of lust. Kindle a fire of passion through sleeping around, or loving self, adultery, greed, malice, envy, selfishness, all of these sinful things. It's like, it's like someone who is just gathering firewood around themselves, and the choice to sin is like lighting a match and throwing it on the petrol. And saying, if you choose that way, people, if you keep kindling a fire of your own making, you're going to get burned. And he doesn't want that. The city of Jerusalem, the temple, they were burned with fire because the people of Judah rebelled against God and they went their own way. So we're either walking in the light, which is light sustained by Christ, or we're walking the light of our own fire. And that's a picture of the fire of hell, which is going to consume it was created for the devil and his angels and those who reject God will also be tormented there eternally. So, if God seems far from you today, know that he has not forgotten you, he has not forsaken you. 
He's not sent you away from his presence saying, don't ever come back here. We may say that to people. Like, you're not welcome. Well, you are welcome with the Lord. He bids you come back. It says, who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, don't exile yourself from God. Don't separate yourself from those who love God and fear him. God wants fellowship with you. This is a word for the weary today. It says, trust in the name of the Lord. Rely upon God. If you're weary, you are looking to your own weakness and perhaps the failures of the past or your inability to change the situation. Something other than him. Because there's rest for the weary in Jesus. Trust in God. Rely upon him. It's when we exile ourselves for Christ's sake, we have fellowship with God and one another. You remember the story of the prodigal, right? I've recently been struck with how the father loved his wayward son. He knew he was wayward, and he gave him the money anyway, his inheritance. We don't read of him sending care packages or little messages, you know, messengers to to remind his son that he loved him when he was far away. Perhaps he didn't want to coddle him. It is just a it is a parable, so we don't want to read into it too much. But I'm sure that that father, wise and loving as he was, having demonstrated that throughout the relationship, he knew his son, when he came to his senses, would find the way home. He didn't have to leave a little breadcrumb trail for his son to find the way home. He loved him, and that's what he remembered. He's like, you know what? Servants in my father's house are treated better than I'm being treated now. Now, he longed for his son. He wanted to be with his son. And that's why when the son was still afar off, the father ran out to him and gave him the robe and the shoes and the ring. He brought him back in as a son, not a servant. And that's what God will do with us. Do you want fellowship with God? You can have fellowship with God. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How awesome is that? It's not like, okay, you know where I live. Come and, come and look me up whenever. He said, if you humble yourself, he's going to come to you. And he is going to make his home with you, wherever you are, no matter your circumstance. You don't have to get cleaned up before you can have fellowship with God. You don't have to um, have your have everything together before you come to Jesus. He says, if you'll humble yourself, he comes to you and he wants to live with you forever. At the door of your heart, Christian, he stands and he knocks. He says, open up, let's spend some time together. Like in Song of Solomon, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Let's be together. Let's enjoy one another's company as we once did. Trust in the name of Jesus. Rely upon him. Then you won't be walking in darkness. You'll be in the light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for the the depth of your riches, for the depth of your grace.
that you would come to us, that you would come to this world steeped in sin and heading for destruction, that you would stand on this rock and become the rock of our salvation, that you would give us eternal promises that you won't withdraw if we will meet your conditions. I pray, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts now to hope like we haven't hoped in a long time, that we would hope in you, not in our circumstances changing, not on other people changing, but that we would trust in you and we would rely on you. Lord, do a work in our hearts today. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears as Jesus' ears were opened because he was obedient to you. Help us to hear you, Lord, and to please you. We do love you. We're grateful and thankful, and we don't thank you enough for all that you've done. So we thank you as one, Lord. We fear you and desire your work to be accomplished in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.